Um, today we're going to continue our Lent series, and um, as Tamsin suggested before, we're looking at the death of Jesus and the peace of God. And the question that we've been wondering about is why Jesus had to die the way that he did, um, handed over by his own people to be killed as a bloody sacrifice. Um, So that's what we're building towards next week. We're going to look specifically at Jesus, but um, today we're going to look at the Old Testament and how the idea of sacrifice plays out in the Old Testament. But to start with, as I was preparing this on Wednesday, it just occurred to me to think about how you as a community might picture me preparing a talk for for Sunday. Um, as I, was, as I prepared it, I was imagining people seeing me in my study, lamp lit at night, with a kind of in, sitting in my leather bound chair at my desk with a typewriter perhaps, and um, a big um, bookshelf of kind of dusty old commentaries that I pull back, pull down and leaf through, um, sucking on my pipe, sorry, or Google World, exactly. Um, writing on parchment, perhaps, with a quill. <laughs> Wearing a monocle. That's right. And with one leg. Sorry? <laughs> and a smoking jacket with leather patches. Um, but it may surprise you to know that that's not the reality. The, the reality is often I'm, for example, on Wednesday looking after Kitty um, and in, in the bedroom with her and having an idea, running out to the computer and quickly typing while she screams, come back, baby, from from the bedroom. Um, So this, again, this may surprise you, but this can lead to a somewhat scattered presentation, somewhat scattered ideas, but it comes, it leads sometimes to some really creative connections. Um, So the other day, as I was playing fairies with Kitty, I was reflecting on how the way I've read the Bible has evolved over the years. And one of the, one of the big things that hap- that's happened for me is realising that, and Shane alluded to this last week or the week before, I've lost track, but um, the fact that the Bible is in conversation with a lot of other texts and a lot of other, and the practices in the Bible are in conversation with lots of other practices. Um, and I was trying to think of how I might illustrate the uh, the power of context to to shape our reading of the Bible, um, and it occurred to me that reading the Bible without any reference to uh, other cultures and other texts was sometimes like listening in on one side of a conversation. And um, so, after it occurred, that occurred to me the the language teacher side of me kicked in. And I thought I could use the conversation I was having at the time with Kitty to illustrate what I'm talking about. Um, So I came up with this. You'll notice that the Kitty side of the conversation you have, but you don't have the Rod side of the conversation. So I want you to talk to the... This is what I do in class. Talk to the person next to you or in a group of three and try to think what... What could Rod be saying? 
try to fill in the blanks. What am I saying? What's my part of this conversation? So just have a chat together. You have two minutes to talk to the person next to you and decide what, what am I saying here. Any uh, any thoughts? What's Rod saying? This is just like a language class, except yeah, everyone will be looking at their phones. Um, oh, they are. No. Um, any thoughts? What am I saying? Oh, I'm I'm doing this. Yeah, that's true. And you do it. So how do we interpret the line, I'm not afraid of the butterfly anymore? Yeah, see? Emma's going... Uh, yeah, could be. So this is referring to something before the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Just random, there's no connections. Yeah, you're looking for some kind of logical flow, but there's no logical flow. It's just just a mad three-year-old. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, we could. I could be telling her to brush her teeth. Stop talking about butterflies. Just brush your teeth. Yeah. Any other thoughts? No, not not. Pr- pretty much no questions. I think I'm just mainly statements. Yeah. So that's that's a, an interesting context question, isn't it? Like. What's actually happening in this situation? Um, Is there a real butterfly in the scenario? And when she says she's stopped, are we talking about ritual sacrifice? (laughs) It's all right, Daddy. She's stopped now. (laughs) So here we go. I'll put you out of your misery. And then the last piece of the puzzle. There it is, the butterfly. <laughs> that's, that's Tilly's toy. Luckily, Tilly was at school, so she didn't see it being used. Hopefully, she can't hear me now. I'll just go and, she'll go and close that door. Um, and there's a little switch at the bottom. Um, but count yourself lucky, because I was thinking of using this conversation Give you a second to enjoy that one. That would have been, that would have really blown your mind trying to fill in the blanks on that one.
There you go. I remember the, the first time I realized that the, the, the creation stories in the Bible were written in conversation with other creation stories from the ancient world. And, and I realized that, that the main point of the creation stories was not to give some kind of you know, pseudo-scientific explanation of how things happened, but was to, to show how the God of Israel was different from the gods of the surrounding peoples, that God was creating out of loving decision rather than by accident, was um, creating an, a good and orderly creation, not a chaotic byproduct of divine violence, and that God was creating human beings in, in the image of God rather than creating slaves to, to meet the God's needs, all of which were characteristics of the creation stories of the surrounding peoples. I also remember the first time someone suggested to me a context for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We've talked about this before, but if you see this command in isolation, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you can see it as just a, a command for strict justice. Uh, if someone does something to you, you can do exactly the same thing to, to them. Don't, don't show any mercy. Don't forgive them. You can do what they did to you straight back at them. Um, but if you see it in the context of a culture where violence often spun out of control and where blood feuds would evolve, where a small slight or an accident then led to retaliation, which then led to a greater retaliation, which then led to the wiping out of an entire tribe, you realise that the intention of a command like this is actually to limit violence, not to suggest strict justice. So again, um, you see the power of context to transform our reading. And um, for those of you who weren't here last Last week, Shane went through the work of um, a man called Rene Girard. And if you want to know the details of what he said, I would uh, listen to the podcast from last week. But the work of Girard had the same kind of powerful effect on me. Um, it was almost embarrassing for me to realize that it had, it had never occurred to me that Sacrificial systems. I mean, I hadn't put it together. I knew it, but I had never put together the fact that sacrificial systems are in pretty much every ancient culture and that sacrificial systems pre-existed the Bible for for millennia and millennia. Um, And that when we look at sacrifice in the Bible, it's just like creation, the creation stories. We're looking at a conversation between one system of sacrifice and all the other surrounding systems of sacrifice and that if we really want to learn what is being taught to us by the sacrificial system in the Bible, we need to compare it to what was happening in the surrounding systems of sacrifice. Um, So today we're going to look at the Old Testament and we're going to look at the ways in which sacrifice in the Old Testament was a little bit different, how it diverged from the sacrificial systems that surrounded it. Um, But before that, I just want to quickly, for those that weren't here, just a quick recap of what Shane said last week. So if you don't get this next bit, blame Shane, not me. Um, 
So basically, René Girard was a, a French anthropologist, one of the good Frenchies, as, uh, as Shane said, who studied people and cultures and found a common thread through nearly every ancient culture, and that was sacrifice. And so he asked the question, why is this? Why have all ancient cultures found this practice to be useful and necessary? Um, and his answer was because it made, makes peace. And um, the next question, of course, is how? How does it make peace? And rather than go into all the detail of how Shane presented it last week, I just want to look at the illustration he gave because I think that helpfully kind of summarises. So he, he, Shane talked about a drought. Imagine a drought experienced in the ancient world and there's been no rain for months, wells have dried up, arguments begin to break out about how much water everyone is using, cattle feed is scarce, a lamb goes missing, the owner is sure that it was one of the rival families in the village. Um, Families start to take sides and violence is brewing. But they know that internal violence can be a disaster. If people fight each other within the tribe, then the tribe becomes weak and it can potentially be destroyed by a neighbouring tribe. So how, how can the, this building violence, how can it be vented, how can it be dealt with without destroying the whole tribe. And so, let's say a wise person, in inverted commas, a wise person asks, why was there a drought in the first place? There was no drought before that kid with the birthmark was born. Maybe, Maybe he's making this happen. Maybe this child and their disfigurement is making the gods angry with us. And the crowd latches on to this and slowly a groundswell occurs, conviction that if we put this child to death, then we'll all be saved. If we put this child to death, the gods will be satisfied and it will reign again. So they suddenly have a common enemy, the child with the birthmark, and the whole village agrees to kill this child. The need for violence is vented, is sated, and then unified again, unified by this common enemy, this common victim, they can wait out the effects of this curse until the drought passes or or perhaps until conflict brews again and they need to find another victim. So the... The conclusion is that if violence is expensive, how do you make it cost-effective? You kill something cheap. You kill a child, an outsider, a minority. You kill, kill some kind of weak other. Um, and so scapegoating and sacrifice becomes a way for a community to survive. And the problem is that this is essentially cruel and unjust. So how do you make it work if it's cruel and unjust? We have to hide the cruelty, hide the injustice of this by making it magic, making it spiritual, making it ordained by the gods. The gods demand it. So we don't have to confront what we're doing. And the other thing that Shane said was absolutely essential is that the scapegoat must be perceived as evil. 
must be given no voice. Their humanity must be denied. They have to be turned into something other from us, other to us. If the scapegoat doesn't deserve their death, then we can't bring ourselves to commit this act. And the last step in this is that that this process of scapegoating and venting violence through the scapegoat becomes ritualized. Sacrifices become part of the yearly cycle. Entrenching this kind of mechanism, entrenching this logic in, in culture so that we can use it when we need it. So as Shane suggested last week, this is a picture of Moloch, a Canaanite god worshipped by many in the area um, of the Middle East, the ancient Near East, and the sacrifice of a child to, to satisfy Moloch. So sorry to race through it like that, but that, as I said, it's just a recap, and if, if things are not clear, then... Yeah, you can have a look at or listen to Shane's talk from last week. Are there any quick questions? As I say, you know, if things are not clear, you can look, listen to Shane's talk, but that makes sense. Okay, so what we're going to do today is is have a look at the Old Testament, how sacrifice operates in the Old Testament, and then next week we'll look at the New Testament. We'll look at Jesus. so let's get back to my embarrassment at having never, it never occurred to me that the sacrifice systems preceded and surrounded the biblical system of sacrifice. Um, the question is, what, what difference does it make, what difference does it make that Yahweh did not invent sacrificial systems but entered into relationship with people who already lived in a context of this ritualized scapegoating, placating of the gods through the spilling of blood. Well, the difference, as I suggested before, like with the creation myths, is that it raises different questions. Rather than trying to work out why, why would Yahweh, why would God invent such a bloody and violent sacrificial system as a means of relating to Israel. We take a step back and we look instead at the conversation that is going on between the sacrificial system in the Old Testament and the sacrificial system around, and we see a divergence between those two sacrificial systems. We see a growing discomfort in the Old Testament with the sacrificial system itself. So what I want to do is just talk about three, three or four specific differences that we notice in the Old Testament, emerging differences between how sacrifice and violence is presented in the Old Testament and how it's enacted in the surrounding cultures. And the first thing is um, that very, very quickly in the Old Testament, the victim as a face. The scapegoats in the Old Testament are not hidden. In so many 
ancient mythologies, the kind of the underlying violence, this system of sacrifice is completely hidden from their mythology. The mythology is all about the gods, you know, running around and having fun in the divine realm. And what undergirds it, this, all this violence and sacrifice that underpins it is not visible at all. But in the Bible, it's front and center from the beginning, which makes the Bible so confronting to us. And yet the suggestion, the, the crazy suggestion here is that that's actually a way of exposing us to the bloody reality of this sacrificial system as a first move away from it. And again, with, with the victims being given a face and the victims being given a voice, starting with the murder of Abel by Cain. Abel is seen as innocent. Abel has a name, he has a face, and he's seen as innocent. The selling of Joseph into slavery. Joseph is seen as loved by his father, as chosen by God, and Joseph goes on to save Israel, save his family, and yet he is the one that is turned into the scapegoat by his brothers. Um, And most powerfully in in this story, uh, what we call the sacrifice of Isaac, what the Jews would call the binding of Isaac because Isaac is not sacrificed. Um, And again, we know that Isaac is the child of the promise. We've spent all of these chapters leading up to this story, um, identifying with Abraham and Sarah, desperate with them for this child of promise to be born. Our investment in Isaac is enormous. And then there is this story. And of course, it comes as an enormous shock to us. And often for me, reading this story in the past, reading it outside of any context, reading it outside of any thought about sacrificial systems, I just saw it as some kind of cruel psychological game that God is playing with Abraham, torturing him to see how much he loves him. It seems really, you know, psychopathic to do that to Abraham. But then suddenly to see this story in the context of every surrounding culture indulging in child sacrifice, it gives it a completely different frame. Suddenly, we can see this story as God saying to Israel, you cannot do this. You cannot do this anymore. Yeah? This is what everyone does. There's enormous pressure to do it, to placate the gods. You cannot placate me in this way by killing your children. And the most powerful way of sending that message is a story like this. This is the father of your people, and I forbade him to kill his own son. I said, kill this animal instead. And then if you, if you look at Exodus, if you, if you look through Exodus and the sacrificial system, we see this repeated constantly in, in Exodus and Leviticus. You see God saying, you owe me your firstborn sons. You owe them to me, yeah? How can God say anything else when that's the understanding of every surrounding culture? But again and again, God says, do not sacrifice them to me. Redeem them with the blood of an animal. Redeem them with the blood of the lamb. It's sewn into the very fabric of the Exodus story, the Passover story. Do not kill your children. 
The second difference that we see um, as we move forward in the Old Testament is that the victim finds a voice. And we see this particularly in the Psalms. Um, There are so many Psalms that have this common theme. The speaker, the singer of the Psalm is alone, oppressed, blamed by all, and the crowd is crying out for their blood. This is the situation of the scapegoat. And we hear, perhaps for the first time in ancient cultures, the voice of the one against the many. Uh, And these are widely called the scapegoat psalms for exactly this reason, like this one, Psalm 140. So I'm going to get Blur to come up and read it for us now. Victim finds a voice, Psalm 140. Rescue me, O Lord, from the evil. Protect me from the violent who devise evil plans in their hearts and stir up war every day. They make their tongues as sharp as serpents. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Protect me from those who plan to trip my feet. The proud have hidden a snare for me. They've spread out the cords of their net and have set traps for me along my path. Yahweh, I say to you, you are my God. Hear my cry for mercy. O sovereign Yahweh, my strong deliverer, who shields my head in the day of battle, do not grant the wicked their desires. Do not let the plans succeed or they will become proud. Let the heads of those who surround me be covered with the trouble their lips have caused. Let burning coals fall upon them. May they be thrown into the fire, into miry pits, never to rise. Let slanderers not be established in the land. May disaster hunt down the violent. I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Surely the righteous will praise your name and the upright will live before you. Now, of course, you see here the scapegoat calling out for, for retribution and violence, and it's easy to see that and go, well, there's still violence here. Um, though I know this is cheating because I'm leaping forward to the New Testament, but it's, it's interesting to think about what the New Testament does with the notion of burning coals. The burning coals are the way you pour burning coals down on the head of your enemies is through loving them. Um, but that's cheating because that's the New Testament, which we'll talk about next week. Um, the point here is that we start to hear the complaints of the victims. We get the clear sense that the communal indictment against this person, the poor and the needy, the group that is most often scapegoated is unjust and it's wrong. The psalmist tells God, do not, do not side with the many, do not side with the powerful, but side with me, the scapegoat. And we see in, in psalms like this, God's interests slowly being disentangled from the interests of the powerful. 
We also, we also see this in, in the prophets increasingly. We see the voice of the victim, the voice of the marginalized, the voice of the poor and the needy, but we also see a growing ambivalence with blood sacrifice itself. God is seen as rejecting the blood sacrifices at the temple and favoring the weak and the marginalized. So Amy's just going to come and read these two passages for us. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I can't stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. For us, this, this shift makes perfect sense. It's so uncontroversial that, that God's highest priority would be things like mercy and justice, but... It's hard for us to imagine what a radical breakthrough this would be for the world of its time. In a pagan world, thinking back to the slide of Moloch, um, what an incredible shift, what an incredible breakthrough the words of the prophets are in this pagan world steeped in blood sacrifice. Almost there, just two more bits. Um, So in Job, we see an entire book devoted to a victim, um, a man whose afflictions everyone around him considers to be just. Job, of course, disagrees and throughout the book maintains his innocence. Um, He goes so far as to accuse God of treating him unfairly, calls out for a trial, a place where he can argue his innocence. Um, And again, thinking about the context of Moloch, the context of blood sacrifice, the idea of the victim, the scapegoat, having a trial is incredible. Scapegoats, remember, are those afflicted by God. They have no face. They have no voice. They are evil, they are other, they deserve exactly what's coming to them. And yet here in Job, we see behind the veil. As the reader, we know that Job is a righteous man. We know that what is happening happening to him is not ordained by God, is not divine retribution. Even though this is what all his friends and his wife assume, It's incredible when you think that about 90% of the book of Job is just all about the unanimous consensus of the group 
that Job is rightly afflicted by God, trying to explain through complex theological arguments why he deserves exactly what's happening to him. And yet Job refuses to agree with this. And amazingly, in the end, God agrees with Job and says to Job's friends, my wrath is kindled against you because you have not spoken about me what is right as my servant Job has. Yeah, the, that Job, that Job who has called, I mean, if you, read the, if you read Job, the things that Job says about God are extraordinary. Job calls God his persecutor, denounces God's injustice and indifference, and then God says, what you have spoken is right. There's hardly a more amazing line in the whole Bible. And lastly, we have... Um, Isaiah, the the fourth part of Isaiah and the servant song. Let us read the first part. You grew up like a sapling before us and like a root out of dry ground. You had no beauty or majesty to attract us to you, nothing in your appearance that we should desire you. You were despised and rejected by all. You are familiar with suffering. When we saw you, we turned our faces away. We despised you and did not value you. Yet you took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. We thought you were being punished, struck down by God and afflicted. It's so striking that it's the people that think that the servant is despised and afflicted by God. Here, as with Job, it's clear that the servant was wrongly scapegoated and that God will stand beside the scapegoat, vindicating the victim. This alone makes it an amazing passage. You were oppressed and afflicted, yet you did not open your mouth. You were led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so you did not open your mouth. I've included the last section here just to remind us that, of course, in the Old Testament, there is still ambivalence. We need to remember that that what we're talking about is a people slowly being led on a journey where they disentangle the God, Yahweh, from the gods that they have known before that. They disentangle their God from blood sacrifice. So we still see that it was Yahweh's will to crush you and cause you to suffer and that Yahweh has made your life a guilt offering. There's still confusion. Is it wrong or is it right for this scapegoat to be punished? And I guess we'll come to that next week. Uh, it's important as we finish our, uh, our quick, I know it's a lightning tour of the Old Testament. It's important to remember that um, it is clear that the Old Testament 
takes the people of Israel on an amazing moral journey. Begins with a bloody sacrificial God, but ends with us being deeply disturbed by sacrifice. We're also very uncomfortable believing the scapegoat is guilty. After both Job and the servant song, whenever we see someone unanimously claimed as being afflicted by God, we now wonder if the crowd has got it right or if God is actually on the side of the victim. Um, So next week we'll take this through to the New Testament and look at what this says about the cross. Um, We're going to finish with communion, but just before that I just thought if there were any, I know, this is such massive territory, (laughs) little questions. Um, Yeah, but if, if there's anything that people wanted to just say, it's a lot of stuff to put on you without giving you a chance as the victims of it to have a voice. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. That's, oh, my gosh, so much to think about. Um, well, some, something that you said kind of made me think also about the story of the fall and how how right from the right right from that moment there's a desire to have a scapegoat and the scapegoat is the serpent or Eve, depending on who you are, and sometimes Adam. Um, yeah, I don't yeah, I don't know. Why did why did why why did that suddenly how did that shift happen and what were we what were we like before that did we did we not have an understanding of that um, yeah I don't know that's just in my head yeah this stuff has lots of, lots of domino effects through our reading of all sorts of parts of the Bible and certainly yeah, it has massive impact on our thinking about the fall. Um, and that's something maybe we could address in another week. But uh, certainly, um, as with as I said before, with the creation stories, is is the intention of the creation stories is the intention of the idea of the fall to give us some kind of historical, chronological sense of things that transpired, or is it um, is chronology is the notion of time a time before the fall and a time after the fall? Is that is that the point of that story? Or is the story really the point of the story to tell us about our current state and it's kind of agnostic about the past? I don't know. But, yeah, they're good questions and we can come back to some of them. So, yeah, from the very beginning you get that kind of introduction of innocence and the notion of the, the clean sacrifice. And obviously there's there's lots of complexity in the notion of cleanness and purity throughout the Bible and the ugliness of the servant of sorrows makes us challenge our, our very notion of what is clean, what is dirty, what is beautiful, what is ugly, but, yeah.
makes more noise out this year. Um, yeah, I just, like just going back to a context thing, we started the series by asking a question, the Franciscan prayer of who are you, Lord, and who am I? And um, just the context thing. In, in ancient mythology, um, if you were to ask the question, whose side is God on or whose side are the gods on, it's the side of the victorious, always the side of the victorious. Whoever wins the battle, um, their gods are the strongest and gods are on their side. The gods are on the side of the rich. The gods are on the side of the powerful. The gods kind of keep the pyramid um, the right way up. Um, that's how you know whose side gods, the gods are on. And just threading through this whole narrative is, you know, Israel, the beaten-up underdog, um, that it asks the question of, um, you know, or makes a statement about whose side God is on, um, which, yeah, contextually is profoundly different than than the um, than every other religion. Moloch was always on the side of the powerful. And there's this kind of like upstart underdog, um, which I think profoundly shapes our, that question of who who is God. Yeah. It's just what Shane was just saying then made me think of there's a Bob Dylan song um, and it's called With God on Our Side and he sings on and on and on and on and on and on and on as Bob Dylan so delightfully tends to do and he talks, he runs through all like a whole bunch of world wars and he runs through how there's a line about how he learned to hate the Russians because that's what you're supposed to do when you grow up when he grew up in America, um, and he talks about how, you know, Hitler killed six million Jews and was victorious because God was on his side and all of these different things. And then he ends the song with this line, and the whole thing feels like you're being set up to this one point where he just punches you in the face with this idea. And he just goes, um, for many dark hour I've been thinking of this, Jesus Christ was betrayed by a kiss and I can't think for you, you'll have to decide whether Judas's chariot had God on his side Um, and it is so that thing of like exactly what Shane said about the whole biblical story of God being on the side of the mighty Um, whereas this feels like you're being set up the whole way through to that moment where you go ah like Yes, and it's not that God's not on that side because God is for goodness and for love, but God is so much on the side of the weak and the needy. Oh, yeah, one one more thing. Maybe this is something you'll discuss in later weeks, but it made me start thinking about how we still scapegoat in society all the time and there are obvious ways in which, um, say, refugees or migrants are scapegoated. Uh, But last night I was reading, um, I don't know how I came across it, but it was something called A Letter from Your Fat Best Friend and it was about fat people on aeroplanes and how they feel so hated by everyone there and it's silencing. And I was thinking our culture encourages us all the time to scapegoat in so many ways that so many of us can't even see. And that was just one that came up for me. Thank you. Yeah, one of the people that's been very influential or helpful for Shane and I in shaping this series is a 
theologian called Richard Beck, and he's got a great and great blog posts about these ideas. And in the last of the blog posts, he he constructs a prayer for himself, and it's the the centre of the prayer is, God help me see my victims, um, and it is so powerful this stuff to make us think, yeah, who 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 am I? Who do I turn into a victim in in whatever context and in whatever way? So it's a nice place to segue into communion. Um, And I guess what I wanted to do with communion is just um, for communion to be an act of reassurance this morning. You know, as Tamsin said, this kind of stuff challenging what we've always understood perhaps in some ways can be very um, destabilizing and difficult. And I guess it's important to return to... um, with communion, return to the fact that that this impacts in no way on the truth of communion, that this is a symbol of God's incredible love for us. Um, the intention of these ideas is, is really to help some of us who have become disconnected from the love that is in Christ's sacrifice to reconnect with that love. But for those of you who are still incredibly powerfully connected to your sense of of God's love for you in this sacrifice and in these symbols. What we're saying today, what we said last week, what we say next week is in no way meant to to undermine your connection. It's just to try to enhance all of our connections, to try to deepen our connection to the fact that Jesus' death was a sign of love for us, a very deep love. So I'm going to read, oh, my phone's gone off again. I'm going to read from Ephesians um, and then feel free to to share the, the cracker and the juice with the people at your table. I bow my knees before God from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that God would grant you according to the riches of God's glory to be strengthened in power through the Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Amen. Share your cracker and share your juice. Now, just as our benediction um, to send us on our way, Kat's going to come up and read uh, this week's prayer from the Tear Lent materials. Um, the focus during this Lent has been on women, uh, and given the theme of uh, this series, it's incredibly important appropriate, I think, for us to continue to pray for women throughout the world who have so often been um, victims of our system. So Kat's going to come and pray this for us. Lord, we thank you that you notice and respond. You came and identified with the marginalised of our world and the way you lived your life, and by your death on the cross and your resurrection, 
You gave us hope for the future. For the pain of an unjust inheritance for so many women, we ask for transformation of hearts, of families and communities. For the pain that has turned into a double portion through indifference, we ask forgiveness. We ask for courage to take up our cross and to walk with you in forgotten streets alongside those who have become invisible towards a transformed tomorrow until they all laugh again. <laughs> 